For the past few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about Kanye West. And it makes sense. Every day, Kanye is trending for something he said about his soon-to-be ex-wife Kim Kardashian or her new boo Pete Davidson. Increasingly, it seems like we talk more about Kanye's drama than the fashion or even his music. But a new Netflix series that's apparently been in the works for 20 years is bringing back memories of the old Kanye. It's Kanye to the platinum producer, calm man product coming at you. <laughs> Send to start working on this Uno project. You know what I'm saying? We just, we just finna lay it down. The first episode of Genius is full of hip-hop nostalgia and documents Kanye's rise from unknown producer to hip-hop superstar. But in so many ways, the Kanye we see in the documentary is a different person than the Kanye we know today. When you hear about slavery for 400 years, for 400 years, that sounds like a choice. <laughs> like, you was there for 400 years and it's all of y'all? To a lot of people, Kanye West is a musical genius. His contributions to hip-hop are undeniable. But what does that title, Genius, obscure when we think about Kanye, the man? Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Kanye West's most recent antics, from his bizarre attempts to reconcile with Kim Kardashian to his public feud with Pete Davidson, have a lot of people once again wondering, what's going on with Ye? And it's a conversation that seems to come up every few years after Kanye does or says something outrageous or goes on another rant. So today, we're going to talk about Kanye West, what we know about his mental health, and the role that we as fans or even haters play in all of it. When we were deciding what to talk about this week, Kanye West seemed like the obvious choice because of the Genius documentary, but also because of his very public divorce from Kim Kardashian, his threats towards Pete Davidson, his short-lived relationship with Julia Fox, his beef with longtime friend Kid Cudi, or any of the many other things that have made him a topic of discussion for the past few weeks. And even if you have been kind of following along, it can be hard to keep up with all the sordid details of the most recent Kanye drama saga. So I'm going to try to help you. For years, Kim and Kanye have seemed to have issues in their relationship, and some of it was documented on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. One moment that stands out for me is when Kanye announced publicly to a stadium full of people that he was moving to his hometown, Chicago, permanently during an event he held in Chicago in 2018. I gotta let y'all know that I moved back to Chicago, I'm never leaving again. But when Kim K tuned into the event, it was allegedly the first time she'd heard the news. The thing that set me off was, okay, that should have been a conversation before I see on the internet you're moving to Chicago. I find out... No, no, I told you that before we had that conversation. We not a serious about conversation. It was a... Any conversation I have is serious. I don't joke. I don't play. The couples also supposedly fought over Kanye's religious beliefs and his new embrace of conservative Christian values. So it seems like they were growing apart way before Kim Kardashian hosted SNL back in October of 2021. And it's so great to be here tonight. I know. I'm surprised to see me here, too. <laughs> when they asked, uh, I was like, you want me to host? Why? I haven't had a movie premiere in a really long time. <laughs> I mean, actually, I only had that one movie come out, and no one told me it was even premiering. Not long after that appearance, rumors started swirling that she was dating SNL comedian Pete Davidson. And the two of them were photographed together weeks after her SNL appearance. 
Meanwhile, in December, Kanye did a concert with Drake, during which he begged Kim K to come back to him. Almost the next day, Kim filed for papers to declare herself legally single, changing her name back to Kardashian. And she continued to date Pete Davidson. And not long after that, Kanye bought a house across the street from Kim Kardashian. He also started dating Julia Fox, an actress best known for her role in the movie Uncut Gems. Julia Fox did a strange interview in which she detailed one of her first dates with Kanye. And that's when we found out that he pulled a classic play from the Ye Book of Dating in which he bought her a whole new wardrobe on the first date. Despite this grand gesture, throughout his relationship with Julia Fox, Kanye continued to make public pleas for his family and wife to come back. He was also publicly criticizing Kim K for her parenting decisions. At one point in a post on Instagram, he said that his 8-year-old daughter, Northwest, was on TikTok against his will. Another time, he claimed that Kardashian and her family were trying to keep him away from his younger daughter's birthday party, a claim that Kim K denies. And throughout it all, he's been taking shots at Pete Davidson that really seemed to cross the line. Some threatened violence. Kanye even posted the screenshots of an alleged text from Kim K asking him to lay off Pete because the situation could become dangerous if fans get involved. Earlier this month, Julia Fox announced the end of her relationship with Kanye. And just last week on Instagram, Kanye said he was taking accountability for his recent post that harassed Kim Kardashian. Whew. All right, now you're all caught up on the major action. But all of this has me and a lot of other people wondering what role Kanye's mental health plays in this seemingly unhinged behavior. No, obviously, we can't actually diagnose Kanye. And this maybe wouldn't even be a conversation that we would have if Kanye hadn't talked about his own bipolar diagnosis in 2016. But because Kanye is the type of celebrity that people will talk about regardless of how they feel about him, I think it's useful to have a conversation about what we do know about his mental health and how that might factor into his erratic behavior. So I called up Professor Maya Hoskin. She teaches and leads one of the graduate-level counseling departments at Loyola Marymount University. She's also written about Kanye West over the years. I started by asking her to react to Kanye's latest antics. I know a lot of people really they find his behavior to be entertaining. I don't find his behavior to be entertaining at all. I honestly think it's quite unfortunate and sad. Kanye is not well. You know, that's first and foremost. Kanye is not well from his own admission. So this is not me or anyone else kind of self-couch diagnosing him. He has said, and Kim Kardashian has said he is wrestling with various diagnoses, bipolar, two disorder being one. By the time I got to TMZ, I was ramped up. So what was awesome is that the world got to really experience someone in a ramped up state. And that's when you get these comments that just shoot out, like almost like Tourette's. Because you, you have highs and lows. And when you have a high, mm -hmm. you're on a roll. When you have a well, low, you're well, not. Well, there's some cases of bipolar where people go low. I'm, I'm one that uh, goes high, I like, like Michelle Obama said. So like you don't high. have extreme periods of, <laughs> of depression? Oh, no. No. Oh. No. Because I just say it. I'll say it on real TV, like, oh, I thought about killing myself, and then the thought is gone. Define it 
uh, f for me. What is the mechanism that is malfunctioning or is taking a break in your brain? Do you know? I wouldn't be able to explain that as much, just, you know, because I'm not a doctor. I can just tell you what I'm feeling at the time. And I feel a heightened connection with the universe. There's some concern over his behavior because it's so erratic and it's so unstable. And it seems to be somewhat detached from reality. This idea that he can maybe bully his way back into a relationship or a marriage with Kim Kardashian or bully his family back together. It's just, it's illogical, it's irrational. And, you know, I think he's even recently said that he believes that he and Kim will reconcile and maybe they will, but I don't believe they're going to do it in this way. That type of logic and rationale is really troubling. It goes back to this narrative of his previous behavior being unstable, erratic, with him running for president, with his behavior during a concert when he went on that rant where he was talking about Jay-Z and his mental health really became a focal point at that time. He's having a medic episode right now. What's going on? But at the end of the day, <laughs> there's no excuse, right? He needs to take the responsibility and accountability for his behavior to seek help. But I don't know if he necessarily wants to get that help because that might interfere with this musical genius persona that he has. You've brought up this idea that like Kanye being this like creative genius. I think oftentimes when people will call it like a quote mad genius or whatever. Right. And Kanye's not the first person that that's applied to. It's often applied to people who are really talented in something mm -hmm. artistic, but they demonstrate disturbing behavior elsewhere. Where does that come from? Why are we so quick to apply it? And then why is it potentially dangerous? The mental health community, we use what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And it's kind of like the mental health Bible, if you will. <laughs> All types of different diagnoses, mental health conditions or mental illnesses, and the presenting symptoms of those conditions. And so there is some truth to various mental illness or disorders that are characterized by certain presenting symptoms or traits that have this appearance of brilliance or genius. Even some presenting symptoms of schizophrenia or autism or being on the spectrum definitely have features of very high IQ levels, the ability to hone in and concentrate very deeply on one set task for hours and hours and hours at a time, certain characteristics that in our culture we translate as genius. So that's kind of like the, the groundwork of it. That's kind of like the foundation. Everyday people, we get our hands on certain information that might not necessarily be our wheelhouse. <laughs> and we put our own spin on it and our own opinion on it. And it's not necessarily rooted in complete accuracy. And then misinformation is spread. And so 
I think that's what has led the way to this mad genius or this persona that's actually accepted and has been normalized. And of course, it's great to have a high IQ. It's great to be highly creative. It's great to excel in whatever area you choose. That's amazing. But these labels of of genius and brilliance, they're in and of themselves problematic for multiple reasons. But one reason is that the person who's being labeled in these ways, they internalize that label and it feeds some level of narcissism to some extent. And it also makes them feel like, well, why would I get help for this? Or why would I go on meds if the meds are going to dilute or water down this self-perceived genius. If I'm being told I'm the greatest thing since Beethoven, you know, I'm the best thing that hip hop has ever seen. I'm a genius. Why would I take something that would dilute that? And the person runs the risk of not seeking treatment or not following treatment, or at least not following it in a way that it's been prescribed. And that becomes dangerous and it becomes dangerous for celebrities. It becomes dangerous for everyday people because we've prescribed or we've associated this label of genius and we've glamorized it. I know that obviously you have not talked with or diagnosed Kanye. So this is speculation. But why does this seem to happen every time he's about to drop an album or Mm. launch some big project? So, you know, it's it's funny you say that because my husband, we just got in this huge debate a few days ago because he was saying, I think it's all for publicity. He's doing this for ratings or to promote his upcoming Donda 2 or whatever. And I'm like, listen, maybe, but something's still wrong because Kanye West knows just as well as anyone else how artists can publicize or advertise upcoming projects that are, you know, very successfully without doing all of this. So even if he is doing this to promote Donda 2 or whatever else he might be working on, choosing this approach to me is reflective and indicative of mental illness. Dragging his family through the mud, unless the Kardashians are in on this too, Dragging his family through the mud, scaring the living daylights out of his ex-wife and his potentially his older kids. I'm sorry. There's, there's something pathological about that. One of the things that stands out to me about the musical genius or mad genius persona is that it's very rarely applied to women. Women who say awful things that people don't like often pay for it with their careers, like Azalea Banks. Or they're deemed unfit. After Britney Spears shaved her head and demonstrated seemingly erratic behavior, she was put under a conservatorship for more than a decade. Or people just write them off as crazy without giving them the pass of also being a genius. Rumors about Mariah Carey's mental health have been whispered for years, but I've never heard people excuse it by calling her a musical genius even though she's one of the most successful female vocalists of all time. Kanye West does what he does because he feels that he can, and he can to some extent. He gets away with it. People make fun of him, they talk bad about him, but they still stream his music. If for no other reason than to hear what he's going to say. 
but he gets away with it and partly because he's a man. So he is a black man. So by being a black man, he can't maybe do as much as Justin Timberlake, but he's still a man. Let's say we had a hypothetical female artist who was a megastar like Kanye West, who was also doing some of the same things that Kanye West has done. Chances are, this situation would go down a lot differently for her. She would be canceled with the quickness. I I don't think canceled in a malicious way, but canceled in a very, we should be concerned about her. She's not well. She shouldn't make any more music. She needs to be committed. And that would be the end of that. So I I do think it's very much a a double standard because we're looking at gender norms and gender roles. And within that, women are not permitted to demonstrate these types of overtly out of control, rambunctious behaviors. Women, we are supposed to stay within a certain box. We are supposed to be, to some extent, ladylike. We are supposed to be more reserved and controlled in our behaviors. It's more permissible for men to show feelings of anger and aggression. Women, on the other hand, cannot and should not, especially Black women. If a Black woman even speaks her mind, she's seen as an angry Black woman, let alone if she's going around threatening people's physical safety. I mean, my gosh, could you imagine? (laughs) It just wouldn't fly. It just would not fly. So in that case, you see this intersection of not only misogyny and sexism, but you also see racism and anti-Blackness in that example. And his behavior, particularly towards Kim and Pete Davidson, a lot of people have described it as a form of abuse and harassment because it seems to be, like you said, so detached from the reality that they're splitting up. And it seems to also be something that Kim does not want. Yes, they're definitely. They're definitely abusive. They're bullying behaviors, trying to intimidate, threaten. But listen, Kim Kardashian is not the only woman to deal with these types of experiences. She is fortunate enough actually to have millions, to be a multimillionaire and have tons of resources and bodyguards and forms of protection. And with that said, I'm sure she is still deeply concerned and scared. But the fact of the matter is women around the world deal with domestic abuse and various forms of abuse. And this type of verbal and emotional and psychological abuse all the time. This is a very real issue, very real. And we've seen almost a wave of incidents in which exes come back and they harm their significant other or their ex. They they harm the the man the the, the ex who the ex is seeing. So in the case with Kanye and Kim and Pete Davidson, for me, You know, some might think I'm exaggerating, but for me, I do think that this is a a potentially dangerous situation. I mean, it's dangerous as it is just in terms of just having to fear for your safety, not having your peace, having your business being discussed. And I mean, although the Kardashians are no strangers to having their business discussed widely, I think they prefer to control what business is being discussed by their media machine, not by Kanye imposing that upon them. Which, and I'm not the biggest Kardashian fan, but I will say is their right because that's their business. And so I'm concerned for Kim Kardashian. I'm concerned for Pete Davidson and I'm concerned for their kids. 
Kanye and Kim's kids. And I'm concerned for Kanye. I think Kanye has said and done some pretty offensive things over the years. I mean, we all remember the Taylor Swift moment. And of course, the slavery was a choice comment. But sometimes it can be hard to tell if Kanye is saying and doing these things because he's dealing with mental health issues or because that's just how he feels or both. So I asked Dr. Hoskin, how are we as an audience supposed to judge and feel about the offensive things he's done that might have been perpetuated by his mental health struggles? We stop, myself included, we stop watching. We stop commenting. I wrote an article about Kanye West and mental health for Forbes about a year ago, but I recently wrote another article about Kanye West and Black women. But in the beginning of it, you know, I said this Kim Kardashian, Kanye West thing has been like a car accident for a lot of people. You know, you don't want to watch, you know, you shouldn't watch, but you watch anyway because you can't help yourself. We need to help ourselves, which is hard in this voyeuristic culture that we live in, that's social media driven and everything's about looking at, you know, what other people have and then comparing it to yourself. But we need to stop because we're fueling. We are fueling his behavior, actually. Me writing about him, me talking about this topic right now, we're fueling it. If he didn't have a platform to go and to pontificate, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He does it because he does have a platform. And, you know, and, and because it will get a rise out of people if, if no one else, his fans or his non-fans, the gossip blogs will talk about his behavior. We will sit on a couch and diagnose his behavior. And so the best thing I think we can do at some point is to make a decision that we're no longer going to feed into this. We're no longer going to talk about it. We're going to hope the best for the situation. And we're going to just stop. I think that's the best thing. And that's the best way to look at this. Because honestly, in all actuality, you know, we don't know everything that's going on behind closed doors. We don't know. And that's hard. You're right. Like you're saying, it's really, we should probably stop, but it's a really hard thing to do because one, he's a Mm -hmm. mega star. Two, he Mm -hmm. keeps putting stuff out for us to consume. You know, he posts stuff on his Instagram. And then three, I think this point of it, um, in this situation, a lot of people have been looking at the way he's talking to Kim Kardashian and saying, you know, this is triggering for them in abusive situations. So it sparked this conversation that's making Mm -hmm. people realize that like this behavior, even if it's happening to you in your life by your very unfamous boyfriend, this behavior is never okay. So there's also like the, we think we can learn something from this situation piece. But I'm wondering, you know, Kanye's not the first celebrity that people have been all in their business, even when there's like maybe a mental health issue going on. What does that say about the way that society treats and interacts with celebrity and celebrities that are going through mental health troubles or whatever other life troubles they may be dealing with? Well, I think that it just speaks to just there being no bounds. Nothing is off limits anymore. I think we live in a time where everything's up for grabs. Once someone puts something out, if I put something on my Instagram page or on my Twitter page, I'm putting that out for mass consumption and whatever I get, I get With that being said, I do think that sometimes we can become abusive of that. And then that means that we're now entitled to full access of a person's life because they've given us access previously. And that's just simply not the case, but that's the culture we live in now. We have an obsessive culture that social media has fueled that reeks of entitlement (laughs) 
in terms of we are entitled to know your business, right? We're entitled to know who you're dating. We're entitled to know, are you getting better? How was that 12-step program? We are entitled to know these things because we're your fans. And because we're your fans and because we support you, we go to your movies or we download or stream your music, then that means we now are entitled to an all-access pass to your life. And social media has created that norm. And I think to some extent, celebrities have played into it because for many, it's been profitable. That is dangerous. That is very dangerous. And it is also not rooted in reality because we should not be entitled and we do not deserve to know, you know, what, you know, the ongoings of a person's life. It it also somewhat, to some extent, desensitizes these topics because a lot of folks are talking about things that they don't, they really don't understand fully and they're putting their own spin to it. And and the misinformation is being spread. And so there's definitely some pitfalls and some dangers in the area of how our culture has become so driven by voyeurism and voyeurism and judgment of, you know, celebrities. How does the public reaction, people, you know, responding to this, how does that stigmatize mental health, not just for like celebrities, but also for like the folks that are watching There are some people who say, oh, poor Kanye, he's struggling with mental health. And and then there's a potential to open up for additional dialogue that might not otherwise have been open. And so that's the good part about this, that there are times where we're presented with conversations that have been highly stigmatized, particularly in the Black community. And so when a celebrity experiences these issues, especially mental health, It provides an opportunity for the Black community to come together and have a conversation about mental health in a way that they would not have had ordinarily. That said, there are tons of other people who are saying, wow, he's crazy, he's this, he's that. You know, they're making memes about him being like a bush in front of Kim Kardashian's house. And then further stigmatizing the mental illness he might be experiencing right now. And to your question, that reaction can definitely make someone who might be struggling with something similar, make them take a couple steps back and say, okay, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to share my experiences with someone, even though I need help. I don't want to seek help because now this has kind of created an additional layer of shame because if Kanye West is not accepted with his mental health challenges, me, average Joe Blow, I I surely won't be accepted. And so that is really what, if we're going to have talking points, that's what the, the talking points should be. The message here should be, listen, mental illness is real and it's common, far more common that we would, than we would like to think. Black folks, it applies to you as well. We should be talking about this. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing that should be stigmatized. However, This is a perfect illustration of what happens when you do not seek help, when you do not talk about what you're experiencing. Don't be Kanye, right? Don't be Kanye. Be the person who takes responsibility and accountability for seeking help. And so that should be the narrative.
Before we go, I want to take you back. All this month, Shadow and Act, a website dedicated to Black TV, movies, and web content, is celebrating Black History Month by highlighting one of the best eras for Black television, the 90s. If you were a fan of shows like Living Single, Martin, or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you might think you know all there is to know about these sitcoms. But I learned a few things from Shadow and Act's Black History Month series and from Trey Mangum, managing editor at Shadow and Act and host of their podcast, Opening Act. For a while now, they've been taking a deeper look at some of our favorite Black sitcoms to find out some of the things we might have missed back in the 90s. Like the very real behind-the-scenes tension on the set of one Friday night favorite. Urkel wasn't supposed to be the main character of Family Matters. Co-stars of his weren't too thrilled with his screen time started to increase and they started to decrease. Steve, come right on in. <laughs> She'll be right down. I have to tell you, Mr. Winslow, when my dad said you fixed me up with Laura, why well, thought I'd wet my pants? <laughs> It's not exclusive to 90s sitcoms either. We've kind of seen it in sitcom history. I even think about, you know, a show like Good Times from the 70s. Similar to Urkel, the character JJ on Good Times, played by Jimmy Walker, wasn't supposed to be the focus of the show, but his outlandish and over-the-top acting often stole the scene. So there were a lot of behind-the-scenes debates about his prominence and the way the character was portrayed. It's one of the reasons John Amos, the actor who played the father on Good Times, eventually left the cast. You have a character that kind of stands out, isn't it supposed to be the main character, but the audience receives them well, and it just turns into a thing of its own. One of the things that made the 90s iconic for Black folks on TV was that there was so much variety when it came to comedies. Variety that we'd never seen before and we've only recently seen again. There were the big ones that we still talk about today. You know, the kinds of shows that get reboots. I have to say the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air were probably near the top of the list just because it has so many moments that we reference today. Like, you know, him crying to Uncle Phil, like, why doesn't his father love him? That's a moment. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm going to have me a whole bunch of kids. I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? All the iconic moments that Janet Hubert <laughs> gave us. Janet Hubert is the actress who plays the original Aunt Viv. Uh, like the dancing moment, things like that. Five, six, seven, eight, one. We had the moment where, you know, Carlton got a gun. More hugs. I saved your life, man. I saved your life. You owe me! Now give me the gun, Carlton. Give me the gun. I saved your life. I want the gun! You can't talk about the 90s sitcoms without talking about Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But shows like Fresh Prince aren't the only ones that define this era. I really like the Wayans Brothers. I think it's kind of one of the underrated ones. You're always stealing from me. I remember you stole my G.I. Joe. You stole my girlfriend. And worst of all, I remember when I found little Lucky wandering the streets all alone. I took him home and I gave him a flea bat. And you stole him too. Maul and Lucky was a wino. <laughs> yeah, but he was my wino, Sean. Why did I tell you? I don't know if it's because 
Sean and Marlon Wayans have just done so much <laughs> that sometimes their own titular sitcom kind of gets overlooked sometimes. But I think that's like a definitely a awesome sitcom as well. And there were the shows that ushered in the new millennium. I I just always have to give credit to the early 2000s because I feel like for the nostalgia factor, we always talk about the 90s. Things that I felt like we referred to as the 90s were actually things that were in 2000, 2001, 2002. And when I think about shows such as The Parkers, right, everyone, give it up for freestyle unity. Iconic, you know, so many, so many, so many musical moments. Give me that mic. I'm the lead singer. You are never lead singer. I said unity. Take it. Let's rock the house, y'all. I so wanted them to release actual music (laughs) from that show so bad. The Parkers is absolutely great. Can't talk about The Parkers without talking about Moesha. The Parkers was actually a Moesha spinoff. I mean, the point is, is that $50 may have covered an emergency in 1935 when y'all were young. But in 1996, all it covers is a cab ride home. So what are we going to do? Sister, sister ended like in 99 or 2000. Tia just moved in here. She's my new sister. Twin sisters. See? (laughs) We just never met before. Now, when we were babies, Tia and I were adopted by different families. I grew up with my mom in downtown Detroit, and I live in the Burbs with my dad. Totally iconic. A lot of shows get kind of excluded from the classics, because you can't really go wrong with the classics. There's like a pantheon of Black television. So much of what we see today in television and film was influenced by what we were watching in the 90s and early 2000s. There's no Black-ish without Family Matters. It's important because it's a legacy, because so many of our iconic Black stars of today got their starts on Black sitcoms, whether it's a guest spot, whether they were series regular or whatever. We did a piece recently on Shadow and Act about people you didn't know that get started on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And it's like Don Cheadle. I've been held back in the 10th grade three times in a row. Three times? Yeah, see, my motto is, when I find a grade I like, I stick with it. Clean the teeth of... I am Didi. I can't believe we got center court floor seats to the Lakers game. That's my team. I know they're going to kick butt tonight. Don't you think? You just think about how many people that are, are so beloved and so iconic in the culture and just like the canon of Black cinema, film and television, that the first time we probably saw them was on an episode, whether it's Girlfriends or even like The Cosby Show. We saw them in that form and that allowed their careers to blossom. I think right now, like I'm, I'm, I'm talking like maybe 20... Honestly, 2020 to present, I think that we're in a new era because for a lot of years, I felt like we floundered for a little bit. But now, which I think, interestingly enough, is coming to a turning point in society with the pandemic, with all the events of 2020, I think it's kind of, you know, ushered in a new era of Black television, Black sitcoms. And I think that's the reason why you have shows like The Upshaws, The Miss Pat Show, which I think bring out the best in the 90s and 2000s comedy series. But you also have shows like Run the World, 
which is on Stars. The first season was showrun by Yvette Lee Bowser. And then you have Harlem, which is from Tracy Oliver, the co-writer of Girls Trip, who also has First Wives Club on BET+. Jasmine Guy from A Different World has a very big recurring role in that series. Whoopi Goldberg is in that series. There seems to be a resurgence of kind of like that same vibe that we had in the 90s, early 2000s. It's not about recreating that magic, but it's kind of like how Good Times and the Jeffersons and the shows that came before that influenced like the living singles in a different world, which influenced, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and so on and so forth through the years. It, it feels like just a natural evolution of Black storytelling. That's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with the stellar team every week to make it happen. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer, and he had help this week from Ellie McAfee-Hahn. And Graylin Brashear is our senior director of audio. Thanks to Professor Maya Hoskin for talking to me. You can check out her piece on Kanye at zora.medium.com. We'll also have a link in the show notes. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode, and in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.